What a good prayer for us to pray and to believe and to trust in the Lord as we look to Him to be our great victor and to lead us into all the victories of life right into our glorious end. As we think about uh, the week before us, I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 62. As I was praying through this week, what would the message be and from where would it come? I, of course, along with some of you, have been praying through the Psalms of the morning. And, of course, uh, we came through some of these Psalms this week. Psalm 64, the Psalm of the morning, is extremely relevant. But I cannot say that all of these others aren't either. But there was one particular thing that kept... uh, coming back to me and back to me and back to me, and that's what I want to focus on today from Psalm 62. Psalm 62, you can't see all of the Hebrew here, but I'm going to emphasize a little bit of it as we go along. It's actually written as a song in three stanzas. Each of the first stanza, or at the very beginning of each of those stanzas, it's emphasized with the Hebrew, ak, which is inconsistently translated, but it's there at the very beginning of verse 1 and verse 5 and then verse 9. Verse 1 and 2 end in Selah. This ak is a word uh, of emphasis. Uh, In verse 1, it begins truly. Uh, It picks it back up in verse 9. Surely... For some reason, the translators do not translate it in verse 5. It has to do with this emphasis, uh, this only, this truly, this certainty, this matter of emphasis of which the the, the psalmist is getting at there. So I'm going to read this and and, uh, just make a note of these stanzas. Uh, Verse stanzas 1 and stanza 2 are very similar to each other, and that's why I want to draw your attention to this. Now hear the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, to Jedathon, a psalm of David. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a, like a leaning wall and tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. Stanza two. My soul wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Stanza 3. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression or vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belong mercy. 
For you render to each one according to his work. Let us pray. Our Father, as we gather around this psalm this morning, we ask your spirit to illuminate it to our minds and our hearts and to drive it into the fabric of our lives. We pray that as you have preserved this song through your holy writ, that you would imprint it upon us today and bring forth the fruit of it in our lives as we can rest silently before our God in praise. And so we ask that you would make this psalm to go with us this week and to govern our lives and our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and that you would remind us of it over and over and over again as we silently wait on you. For you alone are our rock and our refuge, and you alone are our hope. And we pray now this in the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. In his introduction to this psalm, Derek Kidner states, quote, This psalm stands high among the many fine fruits of adversity in the Psalter, for it was evidently composed while the pressure was still intense. It has the immediacy of prayer that still waits an answer, and of the convictions newly confirmed and deepened, end of quote. For some of you who may not know the context of what we are up against, um, there is a significant uh, trial of one of our members along with a few other Christians this coming week, and it is in a federal court. It is uh, a trial in which uh, is being, uh, the event that is happening is because of um, really folks that do not know the Lord and who are at enmity against him in their minds and wicked works. And there is an um, injustice. The trial happens to be with, uh, around uh, an interposition and, um, for life at a, a, an abortion clinic that happened a couple of years ago. And as uh, some of our members and others were at that event, and now the federal government, even though the local and state government uh, dismissed the case, and um, the federal government decides that it would rear its head up and come and invade our area, arrest our people, and to now bring them to trial. If convicted, our um, one of our members faces even up to 11 years in jail with a significant fine. It's a very serious matter. I would remind us as Christians this morning that um, as we gather together to pray, we do not know the Lord's will, but we need to pray in faith, completely resigned to do and be satisfied with what His will is, but we need to pray in faith for victory. And if we're not already at least preparing in some kind of way a victory celebration, praise, psalm sing at the end of this, then perhaps we have already given up on the matter 
and uh, have not really prayed in faith. And so I'm going to encourage us to pray in faith that the God of heaven will show himself forward in strong and mighty ways and that we can rest in him throughout the course of this week and in subsequent weeks. So as we think about the trial, uh, I wanted to bring a message particularly for the church. This is something I think we need. It's something I've needed. As David says twice in this psalm, my soul silently waits for God. The Hebrew here in verse 1 is literally this, only to God my soul is silent. In verse 5 he repeats this in stanza 2, but he turns it now into an imperative. Only to God, my soul be silent. This morning I want to preach to you on a quiet soul that waits in silence on God alone. A quiet soul is not natural. We come into this world with restless souls, out of harmony with God. The silence that David has now before God was one of utter and complete resignation and trust. There's a posture of silence before God that is experienced when one comes to realize that he is utterly guilty before a holy God. That's the first silence that a fallen man must come to before he can rest in the way that David is resting here. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It is only when his mouth has been stopped and he becomes silent before God, realizing his own personal guilt and condemnation before a holy God, does he then begin to open his mouth and pray for God's mercy and grace. And when Christ becomes his new life, then there is this peace with God, and the harmony and the shalom then enters the soul and the heart of man and for the first time, there is not this restless spirit. The soul finds rest in Christ. Now David had come to that place long before he wrote this psalm. I think he writes this psalm as the king of Israel, the context of which is a bit uncertain. But I think there's indications even in this psalm that he was already lifted up in his position. It could be perhaps around the, the time of Absalom or rebellion or perhaps others, but he was a king, and he was the king of Israel. But he had known this silence before. And now he comes to the place where he knows this silence. He's been here before.
And he knew this inner peace that comes when he can just lay it all bare before God. Not try to pretend somebody that he's not. Acknowledge all of his guilt and his sin. And when God had come into his life and given him that great peace... He now can come back to the place and find that peace once again in the great trial of adversity. Now he's in a time of great adversity. He feels the external pressure of wicked men surrounding him. He, even though king, is weak and helpless. And while his spirit may be agitated by the injustices of men who are oppressing him, there's nothing he can do to change his circumstances except to pray to God and trust God for the results. As he waits on God, he prays and he pours his heart out to him and he becomes in God's presence silent. He knows how to wait upon God in silence. Now this is a spiritual discipline that the fruit of the Spirit brings forth in our life. This is a spiritually disciplined restraint that comes only when one's spirit is completely yielded to God in a complete submission and total resignation to God. It is a complete trust in God, knowing who He is by what His Word has declared Him to be. That God is still listening, and God will act on behalf of David. That place of silence before God is a spiritually cultivated soul. This is the fruit that the Spirit brings forth of restraint and self-control. It only comes from God. And it only comes when one has exercised his soul in the discipline of regular prayer. We live in a world that is full of noise. A world of people whose lives are in turmoil. A people who do not know the inner peace of God that you and I know. They have a conscience that testifies against them. All men, all fallen men have a conscience. And to quieten their conscience, they just turn up the noise in order to drown it out. But it's still there. And what you stand for as a Christian merely turns the volume up on their conscience. It makes them feel uncomfortable. And to overcome this tension, they just turn up the noise and they suppress it. This fallen world is a noisy world with loud bustling and activity. We have little Prolonged exposure to silence and stillness. 
Would you agree with me? Silence is often so foreign to us, it becomes awkward and even disturbing to us when we have or experience this in a prolonged way. We live in an industrial time and a technological age where this is especially true. With cities filled with factories that go on 24-7, 365 days a year, non-stop. With cell phones and earbuds in our ears that hardly come out. With noise and conversations and phone calls and music and podcasts and the all of the things that we are just putting in our constant noise. The noise of news and the pandemonium of politics invade our world of silence. We live in a world that creates noise and an at an ever-increasing pace. There's no room for silence. There's no time to be still. But Christians are those who have first come to a place of silence when their mouths have been stopped before a holy God recognizing their condemnation and their guilt and who they are when they've seen themselves in the presence of God. And while we live in a world of confusion and chaos, we have the grace of God's shalom. This wholeness that includes this inner peace with God. We have a way to find this quietness in the midst of a world full of turmoil. And when the adversity and the pressure mounts, as it was here with David. So when oppression and persecution and adversity and trial press upon us and the noise begins to enter our soul... We often, even as Christians, began to struggle with the concophony in our minds, with the internal arguments that go on in our heads, the scripts that continue to get replayed over and over like an endless loop, the endless narratives that are drafted up by our imaginations often leaving the enemy to sow his deceptive lies into those fictitious stories. And then the volume of worry and fear and anxiety begins to increase in our heads and in our minds until the mental noise can be deafening by its distraction. 
This is part of the spiritual warfare that Paul was saying. Those are the things you have to cast down. Those vain imaginations, those false narratives that rise up in our minds against the glory of Christ. But do we not often find ourselves with that warfare going on right up here? And then our hearts become filled with the clamorous turmoil which yearns for peace and quiet. We long for the calm of soul and that shalom. We've been there before. We've tasted it. But now the adversity presses upon us and it stirs us up. And the pressure tests our faith and our resolve afresh. Because it's easy for us to hear the world around us, the clamor and the unsettling dissonance, the hateful shouting and the loud protest of angry hearts attempting to overcome the inner voices of their own conscience. The boisterous arrogance of loud boasting until it begins to shake us. And we feel unsettled and fearful. But we have a place, a quiet rest, where we can go because we've been there before. So we too can join David in silence toward God. The ultimate example is we see this in David's son, the, the David, if you will. Jesus, when he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The silence is a spiritual state of the inner man. A quietness of soul that comes when he is totally resigned to the will of God. Trusting in God's goodness and sovereignty over every situation in his life. Knowing that God is in control of his life and all of the world and the lives of everyone. And when one comes to this complete submission... And complete resignation of his life into the hands of almighty, all-wise, and all-good God. This is the place that yields this quiet, resolve, and peaceful place in the midst of great adversity. This is the state in which those fears and those anxieties and those worries and the angry impulses of our flesh are all quieted. This is the very key to a, a quiet and meek spirit which is commended for us all. 
And this kind of quietness only comes in deep prayer as one resigns himself and all of his circumstances and all of his fears to God. And that's where David was. This did not come easily for David. And why we have so many of David's psalms for us today. Almost every one of the Davidic psalms in the Psalter, and the majority of them are written by him, have this note of adversity, have the challenge with the enemy, and yet... Because of David's suffering and the experience through which the Spirit of God brings forth the truth for us to pray, for us to believe, and for us to sing, we can now stand on his shoulders and we can trust in the living God through every pressure of adversity as we now wait silently before the face of God. When the wind and the waves are roaring all around us, our minds and our hearts and trust need to be fixed on the Lord. The Lord God of heaven, the very one that calls Peter out of the boat in the midst of it all, and Peter walks on water. It's the one who gives us Also peace in the midst of the storm because he is also the one who is sovereign over the storm. Are those not his ways? Are those not his winds? Were they not still and quiet at his beckoning? Psalm 46 ends in this tremendous encouragement when he says, Be still and know that I am God. But how does the psalm begin? It begins, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, God is the God who creates all of this. And all of his creation can bring tremendous fear into the hearts of men, But he says in the middle of that, be still. Know that I am its creator. I am God. And I am a very present help to you who are in trouble. So in the midst of all the commotion, in the midst of the disturbance of the world, in the midst of the wind and the waves, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because this is the same God that told Elijah, go stand on the mountain before Yahweh. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after a fire, a still, small voice. See, it's that peace 
with God in the quietness and the stillness of our souls, in the context of all of this that transcends us into a rest that we ourselves cannot have and a peace that we ourselves cannot obtain, but it is God who carries us and shows us in the midst of it all. This silence, the silence before God. Interestingly, and this is a bit of a parenthetical note, but not unrelated, if you have your Bibles, right there in Psalm 65, the Hebrew does it, or the English doesn't bring this out, but Psalm 65 starts with verse 1 with silence as praise. You don't see it there in your English. It's a two Hebrew word, and it means silent praise. When it says, praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, that's silent praise. Have you ever thought about you know, praise? We always think of as an expression of our mouths, but there's a time in which the Spirit has to be in that posture where we can just sit before God in silence. And our heart is so overwhelmed, it's full of gratitude and praise. With total resignation and total trust. And it's a very comfortable place. And when our hearts are there, then it's ready to express itself verbally. But see, this silence before God is something which God is worshipped with in our hearts. And this is the silence that then shapes the hope of this psalm in Psalm 62. The majority of this message has already been preached. This is the focus that I wanted to draw our attention to. But let me now fill out the rest of this psalm very briefly so that we understand where some of those progressions are in it. As I mentioned, this psalm is in three stanzas. And it's important for us to know this because there is something that happens between stanza one and stanza two. And stanza two, in verse two, or stanza one in verse two, that is, David speaks of this confidence that God is his rock and refuge. This is a constant and recurring theme with David. Rock has to do with the foundation and the basis on which this, and, and the refuge literally is a high security or secure height. Literally is what that means. And when he says in verse 2, because God is this, he says then, I shall not greatly be moved. And the word there is shaken. I shall not greatly be shaken. He qualifies his hope here as a partial assurance. He doesn't hope to escape all of the trouble, but only that which would be ruinous to him. In verse 3, the Hebrew is very difficult here, and so the translations are somewhat strained. And I, I think, I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, which I think it has it right. But it doesn't come through in King James or New, New King James. Verse 3 says this, How long will each of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? 
The idea here is the leaning wall and the tottering fence is David, the one who is being persecuted. And the, the exhortation is focused upon the oppressor who is battering this leaning wall to the extent that it's already leading it's in its weak form and they just want to push it over. That's the imagery. David feels his weakness and his helplessness with the wicked attackers pressing against him, just trying to get him to just push it right on over. And on the one hand, we see throughout Scripture, evil is attracted to weakness and it seeks to exploit its vulnerabilities. Then in verse 4, on the other hand, they only consult to cast him down from his high position. This is why I think David is king at the time. And verse 4 shows us that evil is also attracted to strength because of envy. And so it attempts to pull them down from their high place of strength. So David is feeling both angles here of the wickedness pressing in upon him. And what we see in the wickedness of verses 3 and 4 is exactly the opposite of godly character. Where God spares the bruised reed and he's even glad in our weaknesses so that he can be strong through us. He doesn't seek to exploit or break that which is almost broken. But God is gentle and he is good. And as David quietly waits on God under pressure which keeps mounting upon him, there is a progress in his spirit toward stanza two which is evident. Stanza 2 is almost identical to stanza 1 with a couple of nuances here that we should acknowledge. The one change is in the form of waiting silently on God. Only to God I'm silent. Literally is the Hebrew in verse 1. But it changes from an indicative to an imperative in verse 6. My soul, be silent. Perhaps the last two verses where he was focusing upon the oppression of man agitated his thoughts. But now, in stanza 2, his attention is fixed Solely on God. And so he preaches the gospel back to himself and he tells himself, soul, be silent. Be silent to God. His spiritually trained soul preaches the gospel to himself and reminds him to quieten himself before God who is in control, the God of his hope. Come once again, soul, and rest yourself totally resigned, acknowledging God is in complete control. Be in complete submissiveness to His will and relinquish it all into the good hands of God. Yes, soul, be silent. 
The second change that comes about here then along with that renewed resignation and with this fixation on God now away from his persecutors, there's progress in his confidence. In verse 2 he says, I will not be greatly shaken. He qualifies it there, but in verse 6, I will not be moved. He doesn't qualify it. He takes the qualification away to the extent that there is a firm position of a stronger faith that will not be moved at all. As he has prayed, even through the two stanzas, his own faith has been strong and strengthened to a greater resolve that he will not be shaken. And your prayer has a lot of benefits to us, but it is a means of grace. It is that which changes us as we pray. It strengthens our faith. It reminds us that God is God. And that is why he says, be still and know this. Remember that it is God that is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We're his sheep of his pasture. And he loves his sheep. And through the time of being silent before God and, and praying to him, he works deeply to fix in us a stability of soul that will not be shaken. In verse 7, we now come to a place where then David speaks of the traitors and their plots. But here, that's in stanza 1, but he switches away from that here, see, and he's no longer going to brood on the traitors and the, and the persecutors and their oppression and their injustice. He's not going to brood on them any longer. In verse 7, he, he now turns his thoughts to focus them to God. But there's one new thought that's inserted and added here in verse 7. In God is my salvation and my glory. The word glory there is the word for honor. It's the word heavy. In the Hebrew, weighty. And is that word from which we get honor? And what he's saying here is, on God rests my honor. Now that's something here that no man can do. That there's no nothing that. Anyone can do for us there except for God alone. It is on God my honor rests. And with God, I trust Him for that. Only God can preserve this. And now in verse 8, the very faith that He has grown in and He now cherishes, He's going to exhort you and He's going to exhort me for this week. He says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is our refuge. Two things here he commends. First of all, he's commending our trust in God. This place of resignation, this place of complete turning over to God all things. The second thing that he commends for us is to pour out your heart to him. 
This is the idea of just pouring your heart out. All your thoughts, all your feelings, all of your struggles, all of your weary, worrisome, anxiety, fears, just pour it all out. Just pour it all out. Unload your cares upon the God who cares. Casting all of your burdens now upon him. Just pour it out. This, this is the idea of now expressing yourself to God. Share with him your troubled thoughts. Share with him your emotions. And David commends to us through this psalm, both this pouring of this out, as well as this silence to God. Pour it all out and then sit silently, taking it all in, who God truly is, in the context of all these worries that you have just poured out. And be still and know that He is God. He's got this, He's in control. Now the psalm ends with the vain hopes of men. In verse 9 it says, Surely men of low degree are a vapor, men of high degree are a lie. When they're weighed together, they're on a scale, they're but a vapor. Verse 7 then shows us the vanity of, of the hope that men have. Don't trust in oppression, neither vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. See, this is the vanity of this world in which they're trying to find rest for their soul, trying to find happiness that money cannot buy, and trying to find satisfaction that only God can give, a hope and a peace that only comes from Him. It is all vanity. It's the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes. But he closes with three attributes of God in verse 11 and 12. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belong mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. Three attributes of God here in this psalm for this psalmist of great Resolve. First of all, it's God's power. God is all powerful to do all his holy will, and no one or nothing can thwart it. And number two is his mercy. It's those who put their trust in him. God is merciful. And number three is his justice to everyone. He will render to each one according to his work. So as we walk down this path this week with our brothers and sisters, it is important to remember David's silence to God. This quietness of soul that comes when one is completely resigned, knowing that God supremely is in control, that he is the one that's sitting upon the bench of justice ultimately. We must trust in God's outcome and not man's. Putting ourselves in complete submission to his will, 
pouring our hearts out to him. And when the, the noise of the world begins to enter our mind into our hearts, that's the time to stop and say, all right, my soul, be silent to God. I will not be shaken. With gratitude and thanksgiving to God for who he is and the path that he has led you on this far, and you know the path to which you are going, we can have a deep trust with thanksgiving and praise, knowing that the God of peace will give you that peace that passeth all understanding, and he will keep, that is, that he will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus himself. This quietness of soul comes when we pray. If the noise of the world begins to shift our attention to the wind and the waves, you have to do what David did. Command your soul to be silent before God. Brood no more over the circumstances or over men, but turn your attention upward to God because to Him belongs the power, to Him belongs mercy, to Him belongs justice. And the inner peace will return. As we think about where we are in our lives today, I would commend you. In this day and age of the 21st century. Whose attention spans are getting less and less with that which we cultivate ourselves with, that must have constant movement to keep our attention. That we take these things out of our ears, that we turn off the confusion, and we get on our knees longer than five minutes. And we begin to cultivate in our own spirit a culture of being silent before God that does not bore us, but revitalizes and gives us hope. I don't know how I can express this more deeply than what the psalmist has given us an example for here. The world that has meaning for your life is not a world of constant activity and noise. Now there's noise in praise, but there's also silence in praise. And I do desire all of us to cultivate with the Lord, this way that we can stay attentive before his presence so that we're not sleeping when Jesus comes and finds us in the garden because we're not aware of the gravity of the hour or of the power of God that can keep us standing. And so let's cultivate in this coming year a spirit of prayer, a delight in prayer, 
A, a prayer that pours your heart out to God and a prayer that remains silent for extended periods of time before a holy God that created you. That you might know Him in a deep and profound way that quietens out all the noise of the adversities of this world. Because Christ is Lord of our lives and Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, what a profound and difficult lesson this is for us today and how we have been indoctrinated and cultivated by the world in a way that takes our attention away from God and does not allow us to sustain our quietness before you because of the restlessness that is in the hearts of this world. Lord, as we have come before your throne once before, quiet, humbled, where our mouths have been stopped because the law's condemnation upon us and we cried out to God to save us and you have and you provided Christ You gave us life and you gave us peace and joy and love. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit and rekindle the joy of this quiet place. Lord, as we now bow quietly and silently before you, Remind us of who you are, of your power, your mercy, and your justice. And cultivate in us, individually and corporately, a deep manner of praying where our lives are in total submission, complete resignation, and complete trust in our God, our Creator our Redeemer, our Savior, our rock, our refuge, and our help in times of trouble, and our great victor. Be glorified in whatever may come to pass in every individual life here for the rest of our lives that you give us here on earth. And may we run our race and finish our course well that we may hear those words that we so long to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we pray these things in the strong name of the victorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for his blessed sake, amen.